Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Making Waves at Sea Level podcast with your host, Tom Singer. In each episode, we will explore the interesting stories of business executives, entrepreneurs, and industry leaders who are shaking things up and growing their companies. It is time to make some waves. Now here's your host, Tom Singer. This is Making Waves at Sea Level. Thank you so much for picking this podcast. You know, there's over 2 million podcasts out there, and yet here we are again unless this is your first time listening, in which case, thanks for finding this little show. Today, we're going to talk about strategy because, you know, the world is changing a lot and all of us who work in business had better be paying attention because if you're not paying attention, if the world has shifted and there's new ecosystems, you might get left behind. And our guest today is Ron Adner. Hey, Ron, welcome to the show. Well, hey, Tom, thanks so much for having me. So I appreciate you being here. Today, we're going to talk about changing strategies for today's world. Now, for those of you who don't know Ron Adner, so he is a strategy professor at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College, and he has written two unbelievably great books on strategy, which you should go and get from Amazon like right now because they're awesome. And sometimes he actually helps companies work on real problems when he's not busy teaching the future leaders who are coming out of Dartmouth. And when I asked him what he does for fun, he works on strategy. This guy lives and breathes strategy all the time. And I'm an automatic fan because he teaches at Dartmouth College, and that's where my daughter goes to school right now. So I'm a big fan of Hanover, New Hampshire, because it's a really cool little college town. So anyway, Ron, let's jump in. You have a new book called Winning the Right Game, How to Disrupt, Defend, and Deliver in a Changing World. So tell me about a little bit about this book before we get deep into this. What, what led you to write this? Well, so, you know, as you say, strategy professor, what I, what I look at is how is it that we can give companies and you know, individuals within companies a better perspective for making decisions. And really, if you step back and you think about waves of strategy thinking, we had a really big idea that emerged courtesy of this guy, Michael Porter, in 1980, um, about how to analyze industries. Big book, competitive advantage. And then the next really big shift came from this other giant, Clay Christensen, um, with the idea of disruptive technologies. And what Clay told us was, you know, sometimes industries get turned over when new technologies come in, and we need to be careful not to dismiss these disruptive technologies, you know, like Southwest Airlines disrupting the airline industry or new core steel, changing the way that you produce steel. Um, and those are, by the way, those are incredible contributions, still massively relevant in today's world. But more and more, the feeling of people, you know, not just in practice, but, you know, even students in the classroom are 
That's not the examples we're living through and are interested in. There is something that has changed in the last 15, 20 years. And I, the way I would characterize it, and that's the heart of this new book, Winning the Right Game, is that we have moved from a world where we could understand activities in terms of industries, where you would look at a bunch of companies, you'd look at Ford and GM and Toyota and say, oh yeah, that's the, that's the automobile industry and how do they put it together and how do they run their supply chains, et cetera. And today, if you look at what Tesla is bringing into the game, or you know, Uber, the taxi company, saying we're going to be in charge of being the brains of the car, or everybody expecting Apple to create something in the car space, you can no longer think about it as an industry, right? There's something that we now call, for lack of a better term, the mobility ecosystem, mm. right? And essentially, whenever you hear this word ecosystem today, you know, it's almost a synonym for mishmash, meaning there's lots of new stuff happening, lots of new interactions, and it's in this realm that the old pillars of strategy break down, like they were never meant for it. And that's, you know, that's where my work for the last 20 years has been focused on is how do you build strategies in these ecosystem settings? So I really like this idea that we used to have well-defined industries and strategy worked around a well-defined industry. Now we have broader ecosystems. Strategy has to work for that. And I don't think this is something that the average person has thought a lot about. Is that right? Well, I would say the average person has a lot of intuition, for it, right? We've, they've all lived through it in one way or another, whether as a consumer or, you know, as, as on the supply side in a company thinking about how, you know, how to deal with this kind of disruption or how to drive this kind of disruption. Um, but what's been, I would argue, missing is a coherent set of tools that parallels what we had in understanding industries right? How do we understand strategy making in ecosystems? And that's, you know, between this new book, Winning the Right Game, and my prior book, The Wide Lens, that's the core of, you know, what I'm trying to be helping. All right. So let's define ecosystem. To me, that's kind of a, of, of a term that is a buzzword term that a lot of people throw around for a lot of things. In, in the world of strategy that you study and that you teach, what do you mean by ecosystem? Yeah, I, that's, that's a spectacular question. Right. Because, you know, I actually in the book, I say this, you know, ecosystem used in every business conversation today. Ninety nine percent of the time you could take out that word, put in the word mishmash and no meaning is really lost. Right. And by the way, that that makes it interesting. Right. The fact that it's used all the time tells you that there's a heightened sensitivity to all these new kinds of interactions. But the fact that you could use mishmash also tells you that we don't have a lot of structure behind. So. I have a very specific definition of what I mean when I say ecosystem. Right, so for me, what defines an ecosystem is the structure of interdependence through which partners interact to bring about a value proposition. Okay, so let me unpack that for just 20 seconds. That definition is anchored in a value proposition, which means it's not anchored in the identity of a company. So it's, I don't talk about an Apple ecosystem or a Google ecosystem or a Facebook ecosystem, right? I would actually, my statement on that is that when you define an ecosystem around a company, you fall into what I call the ego system trap, right? That Apple in health and Apple in finance and Apple in e-publishing, those are different value propositions. And even if it's Apple and 
similar set of technologies, the set of partners they need to bring together and the handoffs between those partners, the structure changes. And that's why if you're Apple, you need to think about different strategies for those different ecosystems. So an ecosystem is the structure through which you interact to deliver a value proposition. So we kind of covered this before I got into the question about ecosystems, but I want to go a little bit deeper. What is the difference between sort of the classic disruption that you alluded to and sort of this ecosystem disruption? Let, let's let's dive into a little bit more of what things were like and where things are going. So that's, 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 a, that's a great question because it gets us to the heart of the difference, right? So classic disruption was all about understanding technology substitution. Right. The industry had a certain way of doing things. And then somebody came up with a new way. Right. New core steel finds a new way of manufacturing steel using mini mills rather than large integrated mills. Or, you know, Toyota has a different way of organizing their supply chain so they can do, you know, higher quality cars at lower prices. So traditionally, we used to think about the way in which you do the work changing. And the question was, well, you know, can you manage the capability shift, et cetera? But if you step back, what you realize that in all those stories, the industry still stayed the industry, right? I mean, Southwest Airlines was still selling you airline tickets. You know, mini mills were still selling you steel by the ton. Whereas what we have today, this ecosystem disruption, which comes about through rewiring, is one where the core value proposition itself is being revisited, right? So again, if I go back to that automotive example, when Tesla first comes in with electric cars, it's regarded as, oh, this is a classic technology play. You just need, you know, batteries and motors instead of gasoline and engines. And the classic car manufacturers are like, this is no big deal, right? GM says, you know, I made an electric car before you were even born, right? I made the EV1. And Nissan says, I made the Leaf in 2010, no problem. But then the value proposition that Tesla brings out, well, you know, there are going to be these charging stations. And it's not that I'm diversified into making cars and separately I run charging stations. But in fact, the whole mobility proposition, the way you're going to drive the car and plan your routes has to do with where these charging stations are. And the way I fix the car with the wireless updates that are different from having dealerships Right. That is reconfiguring the set of interactions that deliver a value proposition and responding to that while understanding the change and responding to the change and driving that change. That requires this different toolkit because that's what falls into this other category of ecosystem disruption. We're changing the structure of interdependence to deliver the value proposition. So does this lend itself to companies needing to be more collaborative? in order to operate in an ecosystem like this, as opposed to being in a silo? Well, it raises, it, it, it puts the question of collaboration at the forefront, right? So, I mean, companies are always collaborative, right? If you think about the traditional automotive industry, you can't look at that massive supply chain mm -hmm. with first, second, third, fourth tier suppliers and say, oh, there were no interactions, there were silos. What's happening today is that those connections are being rewired, right? So the way we need to think about collaboration itself is changing, right? And in some ways, the way you know whether you're in a, 
and industry work, which, by the way, remains really important. And you still need to, need to know how to manage and execute there. But whether you're in an industry world or an ecosystem world is, can I think about those relationships one at a time? Are they separable? Or do I need to think about the structure of interdependence, like, you know, the multilateral ties, right? I can't, if, if I can just think about taking out one supplier and putting another, I know how to do that, right? There's maturity in the wiring. But if I can't think about one without recognizing an impact on three other relationships I have, right? If I'm still working through that process, then I'm in this ecosystem. And what happens as we're thinking about this wiring and we're thinking about these partnerships is that questions like what's your role in the collaboration come up, right? There's never been a question that, you know, the tire guys ship the tire to the car manufacturer who then delivers it to the customer. But today, you know, who's, who's has the tighter relationship, right? Is it going to be the charging network? Is it who's, right? Who's going to lead the ecosystem and who's going to be the follower in the ecosystem is a question that arises when we're restructuring relationships, right? It's a question we, we could ignore in a mature industry. So this leads me to the question of what does this really mean, mean for the people who are leading companies? If, if they're in a disruptive state and they're aware of it and they're paying attention and they're noticing that their industry is moving more to an ecosystem, what do the leaders need to be doing right now? So, you know, a number of different things, right? In some ways, that's the, the, you know, the heart of the book. The, 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 the major part of the book has to do with understanding the concepts that govern interdependence. Ideas like how competition changes. What happens when suddenly your, your threats are coming not just from these new disruptive entrants into the industry, but rather partners are expanding their footprints and your disruption is coming from your complementers. What does this mean for how you think about driving new growth through the creation and the formation of coalitions of partners, right? How do you think beyond just your team and your execution, right? There's some really important implications. I mean, I'm basically, I'm, I'm, I'm walking you through the chapters of the book, right? <laughs> Chapter one is like, how do you see the big picture? Oh, no, that's great. Two and three is about defense and offense. Four has to do with timing. Like, how do you think about the timing of things when success is dependent not just on you doing your job, but your partners being ready as well? So kind of how do you think about disruptive as a not, you know, whether just just kind of the weather things will change, but when, you know, being, you know, you know GM's a perfect example. You know, having had an electric car in 1996 has given them zero credit in 2022, right? So they were, you know, correct about a revolution, but being 20 years too early, Makes no difference. You know, being first to the being first to the finish line to, to the starting line is winning the wrong race. Um, so there there are concepts to be had, kind of that parallel the old ways that we the old tools that we had in terms of strategy. But there's also a really significant implication for leaders themselves and the 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 mindsets that leaders need to have in this new world. This is kind of I, I distinguish in the book between the what you think of, you know, traditionally as, you know, so Jim Collins, a spectacular thinker in the space, who had this idea of what, what is a level five thinker, a level five leader. 
And a level five leader is somebody who understands their, their industry and their markets and their customers, and they put their company ahead of themselves, right? That is like the peak of an execution leader. Now, if you are trying to bring other companies into a collaboration to develop new market space, this quality of always putting your organization first, well, that's not really helpful in driving a coalition, right? In that kind of world, what you need is to give primacy to what I talk about as an alignment mindset, right? It's a mindset that puts the coalition building and sustenance even ahead, at least in the, in, in the short and medium term, of what it is that you're trying to achieve for your company because unless you get the collaboration in place, you're not creating any value. So thinking about capturing it is, you know, is, is theoretical in the worst way. And so part of what you need to think about is where you are in terms of what I talk about is the ecosystem cycle, right? So the, the, the way to think about this is that, you know, 120 years ago, when automobiles were being invented, there was a, it, it was an ecosystem context. Right? People were trying to figure out relationships. Okay, I'm going to make the thing that sits on top of the four wheels and has a motor. If it breaks down, who's going to fix it? Right? Well, where are you going to get the fuel to power it? And who's going to pave the roads? And how do you, you know, how do you compensate somebody if you run them over? <laughs> Nobody knew. Right? So there was this, you know, primordial soup where over time the ecosystem matured into a, a set of agreed upon relationships. And we can begin to identify industries. Ah, you're the car makers. You're the service garages. You're the insurance companies, right? You're the, it's, it's the city government that sets the speed. We mature into an industry setting. And then at some point, perhaps we're seeing this, we can talk about why we're seeing so much more of it happening now. Um, those relationships begin to be unraveled. And you need to rediscover what does relationship look like in a world of, let's say, autonomous cars, of electric cars. And depending on where you are in that cycle, the mature industry space or the emergent ecosystem space, you need leaders that either have a focus on execution or a mindset of a Right. So this is not about finding, it's not that one kind of leader is better than the other, it's that one is more suitable to a setting than the other. So you need to, it's more of a matching exercise for the so, people picking leaders and for people developing themselves. as leaders. So you've, you've said a lot and I have a lot of questions. So I'm just going to kind of go through the, the couple that have bubbled to the top. One is you talked about, and you, you alluded to the fact of, you know, that you may be in a position in this ecosystem world that you're driving growth through partnership. That's got to change a lot of the way a leader thinks as opposed to, driving growth from the top down and, and getting each department to do the, their part. If you're driving growth through partnerships, what do you have to do differently? Well, I mean, essentially what it means, this is like takes you into this world of how does it mean to get people to follow you in the absence of any hierarchical authority, right? And even more challenging is, you know, so I, I, I you know, in this chapter, you know, a CEO is royalty in their organization. But when they go to talk to another CEO, there's no, you know, hierarchical force of followership, especially when you're talking to a partner from a different industry, right? You, you, you really see the emergence of this ecosystem trap 
when a company that's leading in one space tries to collaborate with a company that's leading in a different space, and they have this idea, right? I kind of discussed the case of, uh, of mobile payments in the book, Chapter 5, for those who are interested. Apple Pay is a beautiful example of a mass. I mean, if you think about the expectations that were set in the beginning, this is just, you know, front page disaster. And it's not because the idea of mobile payments is not a good one. Um, it's because there's been an inability to bring the key parties together, right? the key parties being, you know, the handset providers, the oper- the telephone operators, particularly the retailers, each one of these groups that set up their own version of how to do mobile payments and nobody can convince the other side to follow, right? So in an ecosystem, just like in real life, you know, the leader is not the person who says I'm going to lead, right? The leader is the person that everybody else says, that's who I'm going to follow, mm. right? And so, you know, to your, 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 your question about, so what's the different mindset is you can't assume any kind of control or hierarchy. Rather, a key part of your strategy is how do I build alignment how do I either create a justification for other people to follow me or how do I be a smart follower? Right? Cause you can't all have, if everyone's a leader and there are no followers, then there's, you know, all you have is chaos. <laughs> so one of the interesting things that comes up in the strategy conversation around ecosystems is, so if everybody can't be leaders, what does it mean to be a follower? And what's the difference between a naive follower versus a really smart strategic follower who, by the way, as a side note, strategic followers can have a better ROI than leaders. The other question that I had was you made a a reference to the fact that this is happening more now, that these these ecosystems are existing more and, and are going to happen more. Why is this a now thing? So... All right, it's a great question. So first of all, right, this is not new, right? You know, the Romans had to coordinate road networks four or 5,000 years ago. So the, the notion of managing interdependence is not new, even if the buzzword feels modern-ish. But what is true is that the ability to bring things together has the, 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 the entry costs for collaborations have collapsed in the last 15, 20 years because of everything we know about technology and and data and interfacing and things like that. But two, the motivation for those kinds of experiments has also exploded, right? Everyone is looking for growth in new places because they're afraid of losing their position in their old home market, right? No company makes a product, right? Because products are easy to imitate offshore, right? So then everybody moved to solutions which was basically I'm going to stick two products together and maybe bundle a service. And then they saw, wow, people can imitate that. Let me do something more sophisticated. And so, you know, if you're even a medium-sized company today, then the the breadth of opportunity that you're pursuing, like the number of new ecosystems you're trying to pursue, right, is probably a lot higher than it was 15 years ago. And at the same time, the variety of competition that you're facing Right, people who didn't used to be in your industry but are now showing up, that is multiplying as well, and and that's why, you know, we're facing this, you know, this crisis in the world of strategy, which is the old tools weren't meant for this kind of environment. They were meant for, okay, I have an industry. How do I think about supplier buyer power and buyer power and barriers to entry, as opposed to how do I think about a company that's in my space making money in a totally different way. 
right? Trying to do things with, their, with, with, with my customers towards a totally different goal. So let's take this down from the leaders of companies and let's take it down to the rank and file. How does this yeah. impact those of us, you know, out there who, who aren't the CEO differently than it does the person who maybe is the CEO? So this, I, this, I can't, it's such a great question. And it's, you know, so many strategy conversations like, well, let's just, okay. So, you know, I, you know when, when you teach strategy to MBA students, there's a lot of cases that you teach. And most of these cases start with, you know, Jim or Jane Smith is sitting in the corner office thinking about what they should do. I'm running GM and what should I do? And I tell my students, you know, the more appropriate opening is that Jimmy Smith is standing outside that office, quivering in their boots as they're going to be asked for an opinion about something, right? The va- if, if all you could do is tell CEOs what to do, well, that's a very, it's a, it's a great thing to do. And CEOs should certainly read this book, but to be useful for the, the people in organizations who don't have strong control over the strategy range, by the way, CEOs don't really have that either. But if you're in the middle of the organization, it means two different things. For you. Okay, one is, all right, in your areas of control, how do you want to think about your management style? How do you want to think about the investments that you control? But for thinking about your career, and where it is that you want to spend your time, suddenly it means that the way in which you select the projects and the leaders that you want to be working you know, with and for can be informed by this new set of concepts, right? So suddenly what we see, so I would say that the vast majority of really exciting projects and companies today are in this space of rewind. Like they're, they're all ecosystem opportunities. They're not like, we'll just make a better version of the old. Product. What I would also tell you is that the vast majority of those don't work out. Hmm. Not because they're bad ideas, but because they, they, are, they are brought to market in ways that are insufficiently sensitive to the full set of collaborations that their success depends on. And most companies kind of focus too much on their own execution most leaders focus too much on the execution of their teams and just kind of assume the rest will take care of itself. Whereas, you know, winning the right game is focused on aligning your partners towards that victory. So if you're trying to pick what you're trying, what you're going to devote your life energy for, right? You want to understand how the, how the people in charge are going to be pursuing those opportunities. So it's not just headline excitement that should tell you where you want to focus. It's, do I think these guys know what they're talking about in this new world? And if the answer is yes, then you double down and embrace them. And if the answer is no, then maybe this is not what you want to commit to. You want to find the right opportunity for you. So I'm going to shift gears really quick for my last question. You don't know this one's coming. So as someone who, you know, has dedicated their life to higher education, and as for me, someone who is the parent of a Ivy League student, how is this disruption actually impacting higher education? Because as you were talking, I started realizing that the world of higher ed probably should be reading your book. Um, I agree. By the way, I should have said, anybody listening to the podcast, you can read the first chapter of this book, the complete chapter for free. Um, you can get it on my website, monadner.com. So that's university presidents are welcome to click there as well. <laughs> so, you know, it's interesting. If you think about disruption in higher ed, 
the way it's been, it was discussed 15 years ago was, you know, like the low cost universities would come in, like, you know, a, you know, Phoenix University would come in and they don't have the cost of big campuses. They run classes in hotels and, you know, it'll be cheaper and good enough, kind of classic disruption. That didn't really happen. Then there was this version, which was the digital version. Ah, oh, you know, everything's going to be online. Um, and, you know, we can replicate courses and lectures at zero cost. And that's going to destroy these universities. That didn't happen either. I'd say where things are today is actually there are massive collaborations between companies like Coursera mm-hmm. and universities like Dartmouth, actually, mm-hmm. um, where people are figuring out what these new combinations can look like. Right. So, like my look, my view for higher ed is that we the, the, we just ha- we just ran this terrible experiment called COVID. <laughs> Don't get me started as a parent. <laughs> well, you know, nobody wants, it turns out nobody wants to stay on. Very few people want to stay on. Right. So we know there's something to the physical existence. This is actually in this first chapter of the book. I talk about this idea of value architecture, which is a way of thinking about what are the constructs that underlie your value proposition. And I think the, we're higher, we're higher ed, needs to go is to revisit that value architecture. Like what are the, what are the critical elements? And then ask, how do we advance and enhance these taking advantage of the, the, the tools that are available to us now? Right. And this is why, you know, people are, you know, you know, it's going to have, have some kind of hybrid version. It's not the old version of, you know, it's going to be one or the other, the new thing's going to substitute for the old. It's no, how do you create complementarities and I think the schools that do a better job of this will, you know, it's interesting. They, they won't necessarily grow their student bodies, right? Because for, you know, different insane reasons, higher ed prides itself in, on selectivity, right? Which is the more people you turn away, the more famous you become, as opposed <laughs> to the more people you attract and, you know, and, and, and support. Right? That's the craziness of that industry. But the, the experience that you can give, to those people, which will then drive attractiveness. I think that will, uh, that will be intimately linked to how you take advantage of recreating the ecosystem and enhancing the ecosystem that we're in. So do you think then that, that there's going to be major disruption in higher ed, or do you think it'll be minor disruption over the next maybe five or 10 years? Well, I think it's a, I, I think that there will be moderate. If you, if, okay. Disruption in terms of changing the ranks and, and, and where do you, you know, where, where do kids, you know, are staying up all night to go to? I think that's going to be the same for decades. Um, disruption in terms of how things are done in the delivery of the value proposition of higher education. I do think that we're going to be seeing, I don't think radical, but, but moderate is not too much of an aspiration. Sure. Well, no, I just, it came to mind since we both have a connection to Dartmouth. So I wanted to share that. Hey, And, and by the way, we're both parents paying tuition. So I am <laughs> both sides of that equation. <laughs> well, Ron Edner, professor of strategy at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College. Thank you so much for being a guest here on Making Waves at Sea Level. Would you give your website once again so people could find the free chapter of the book, more information about you if they're looking for a strategy consultant or a strategy speaker. And also, I assume from there, you can link to Amazon or wherever they want to buy the book. Yeah, well, yes, there are all kinds of additional resources that I put out there just to be helpful. 
So the website is ronadner.com, R-O-N-A-D-N-E-R.com. Um, and, um, you know, what I say about this book is share it with your friends and hide it from your enemies. Right? You want to you want to hide it from your enemies because if they figure out this logic before you do, you're you've got big problems. But you want to share it with your friends because if your partners don't understand this logic, your partnership will be a lot less efficient. And that's the that's why that sharp chapter is there. It's just it's it's not just for people to read; it's for people to share. So I do encourage folks, and I really hope it's helpful. Nice. Well, I really appreciate you being here. And next time I am in Hanover to visit my daughter, maybe we can go have a cup of coffee. I'd love it. Awesome. Thanks, Tom. And thank you to everybody who tuned in and listened. And thank you to our sponsor, Podfly Productions. Podfly takes the headache out of creating your own podcast. And I know that a lot of you are thinking about, I want to get into this podcast game. Well, you can't do it without a great partner like Podfly. They set you up with the right equipment, training, and guidance to assure you're going to sound amazing. And you can focus on creating great content growing your audience, and interviewing people who are making waves in the world of business like Ron Adner. Hey, to get a good offer from Podfly, jump over to podfly.net slash cool things and check out the offer that they have for the listeners of this show. Again, thanks to Ron Adner for being a guest here. Thanks to all of you who tuned in and listened. Do me a favor, go out there and flex your business muscles. Make sure that your career ladder is against the right wall because I don't care how good your strategy is, If you get to the top of that ladder and find out you hate where you are, that's not going to be a lot of fun. And while you're doing all this stuff, have some fun every day. Go out there and have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Making Waves at Sea Level podcast. Without your listening to these in-depth conversations, there would be no show. Connect with Tom at TomSinger.com and follow him on Twitter and Instagram at TomSinger. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.